a space flight at the hour of maximum danger. I'm Tanya Hall, and joining me is Jeff Seschel, author, historian, and former presidential speechwriter. Welcome, Jeff. Thanks, Tanya. Why are you sometimes referred to as an accidental speechwriter? Well, I never set out to become a speechwriter, let alone a presidential speechwriter. I was doing a couple of things in the 1990s. I had a syndicated comic strip. That was my day job. And I was also writing a book. I wrote a book about the feud between Lyndon Johnson and Robert Kennedy. And that came out in the fall of 1997. And to my great surprise and delight, President Clinton read it. He's a big reader, as many people know. He read my book, and I wound up getting an, a, a job offer to, to come on board and be a speechwriter, um, which was really the opportunity of a lifetime. So in very short order, I dropped the comic strip, the book was already out, and I found myself working at the White House, which is not something I ever expected to do. Your latest book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War, just hit the shelves. Why did JFK call the time of John Glenn's Mercury spaceflight the hour of maximum danger? John Kennedy had seen the arms race of the 1950s. He understood that he needed to continue to build up the nuclear arms of the United States. Um, we were locked in a conflict with the Soviet Union that given the numbers of nuclear weapons on both sides, risked annihilation at any point. And Kennedy's great fear was a miscalculation. He didn't feel that, that either side was going to deliberately seek a nuclear war, but he felt that by one means or another, they could get close enough that a single lapse of judgment could, could create a nuclear holocaust. And so he warned the country in a speech in 1961 that the hour of maximum danger was drawing near. How was the space race between the Soviets and the U.S. a microcosm of the struggles between the two countries? I think we tend from this vantage point today to look back and think that the space race had one timeline and it was sort of a friendly competition with the Russians. And then on another timeline, there was the Cold War and there was Berlin and there was Cuba and there was Southeast Asia. But as it was seen and understood at the time, particularly by President Kennedy, all of this was, was happening on the same frame in the same moment. And it all represented part of the same challenge, the same threat that was being posed by the Soviet Union. This was not just a race. This was an existential struggle between freedom and totalitarianism. And it was understood around the world, whichever side you were on, that the nation that dominated space was going to dominate life on earth. Space was seen as this frontier from which uh, anything could, could, uh, could happen. And even uh, the idea of, of the Soviets building a nuclear base on the moon didn't seem fantastical to people. It seemed like a very real possibility. And so the space race and the arms race and all of the Cold War contests that were developing around the world we're all seen as part of the same struggle. Was John Glenn an optimist when it came to U.S. involvement in space? John Glenn was an optimist. Uh, he was incredibly excited about space exploration. He understood the dangers. He understood the dangers to himself. And yet he really believed that uh, America would ultimately prevail. 
uh, over the Soviet Union. He really believed that we were going to discover incredible things that were going to advance human knowledge and create progress here on Earth. And he was thrilled to, to be part of it. Um, he felt that he was serving his country, and he felt even more broadly that he was serving humanity. In the book, you discuss previously unpublished documents from John Glenn's personal archives. Cite an example of a document that revealed the tension uh, between the astronaut and NASA officials of that time. Well, thankfully for the historian or for anybody who wants to write about John Glenn, he kept very careful notes and he saved them. He saved them all and they're in his archives at Ohio State. And one of the documents that I found that I thought was very revealing, and I described this in the book, is that on the eve of John Glenn's historic flight, his orbit around the Earth, he is in, in constant argument with uh, NASA officials. He, he's, he's battling with them over his, uh, over his flight plan and the degree to which he, rather than the folks on the ground, are going to get to control his capsule. They want him to let the entire thing run on autopilot. And so I found some handwritten notes before a meeting where Glenn said, essentially, you're all telling me this is in the interest of flight safety. This is actually bad for flight safety. And no one's in, in a better position to judge that than me, he said. And then he, he writes himself a, a note, and it's hard to imagine that he actually said this out loud, but it's incredibly revealing in terms of how he felt. He said, I've never felt so alone or had so many against. Why? And he underlines it and circles it. And this is on the eve of John Glenn being shot into the vacuum of space. It's, it's incredible that here on Earth at Cape Canaveral, he really felt besieged in that relationship with the managers at NASA. It's interesting to hear what it was like at that time. Set up the story of how President Kennedy finally agreed to send Americans to the moon. Well, Kennedy had campaigned in 1960, arguing that America had to close the gap in space with the Soviet Union. He had said in 1960 that if the Soviets control space, that they would control life on Earth. And he said it was un unacceptable for the United States to be second in space. It was dangerous to be second in space. But he didn't have a plan to become first in space. And so when he became president and settled into office, he was facing crises all around the world from Western Europe to, to Southeast Asia. And space was not at the top of his list of concerns. He knew he had to do something about the program. He just wasn't sure what. And it was not until April of that year, April 1961, when the Soviets sent the first human being into space, Yuri Gagarin, and suddenly it was such a shock to the system in the United States, even though it had been long expected, there was something shocking about it actually happening and thinking there was a human being and a Russian human being, by the way, going around the earth in space. Kennedy finally recognized he needed to do something. He wasn't sure what. He called in his vice president, who had been a real leader on, on space, Lyndon Johnson, and Johnson helped to set up the, the decision, and Johnson had an outcome in mind. He wanted to go to the moon. Going to the moon gave the United States an opportunity over a long period of time, almost a decade, to leapfrog the Soviet Union. There was no guarantee that we could do that, but there was the possibility. Whereas we were never going to catch up to the Soviets in the next year or two, or even three or four. But given a long enough timeline with enough technology that hadn't even been developed, we had the chance 
not only to catch up, but to surpass the Soviets. And that's why Kennedy made the gamble. So what lessons should we take today from events that you document from 60 years ago? I think that one of the lessons that, that was really brought home to Kennedy when Yuri Gagarin orbited the Earth was the symbolic power of space. That there is an ongoing debate, there was in the 1960s and there is today, about what we here on Earth actually get out of space exploration. Is there any practical value to you of having that incredible rover on Mars, the Perseverance? It's pretty cool. It's exciting. It makes you feel good about being a human being and good about being an American. But what, what kind of value can you put on that uh, for your taxpayer dollars? So that debate is ongoing. But I think that the, the effort is not something that, that the United States can ever opt out of. Kennedy recognized this in the early 1960s. And I think President Biden will recognize this now that we don't get to determine whether there's a competition and we don't get to determine how it looks to the rest of the world if the United States is not in the lead. We have to engage. And I think that uh, President Biden recognizes that already and has begun to make some decisions to indicate that. But it was a hard earned, hard learned lesson for both Kennedy and Eisenhower before him. I would say they can stay tuned here for the answer to that question on, on the benefits of our space exploration, because we do cover a lot of those stories and, uh, you know, we could, they could tune in here for that. Uh, so where can people get a copy of your book? Well, I, I, I'd like to say, as the cliche goes, wherever books are sold, you should be able to find it. Um, but you can also go to my website, which is mercuryrisingbk.com, mercuryrisingbookbk. Dot com and you and it links from there to all sorts of options from Amazon to independent booksellers and you can also find out about events uh, about the book and, and all sorts of other things. Jeff Sheschel, historian, former presidential speechwriter, and author of Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Where can people connect with you, Jeff? Um, they can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Shessel, which is J-E-F-F -F and S-H-E-S-O-L, at Jeff Shessel. Sounds great. Thanks again. Thank you. And find and subscribe to more of my interviews right here on ZDNet, YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and at TanyaHall.net. Thanks for watching.